Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. Uh, so God, we welcome you in this space now. So we uh, open your word. Spirit, can you open our hearts to be able to receive the majestic and miraculous work that you have done through Jesus Christ. You bring it to us. May we see the promise and hear every good thing. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We are beginning a new series this morning for three weeks in which we are titling the series uh, between two trees. And I want to talk about in this three week series how your Christmas tree, or maybe the Christmas trees around you in your life, can actually remind you of the work of God that is available to you. I uh, have shared this story before, but my uh, grandmother would absolutely be thrilled and excited for Christmas to come every single year. She would go very deep, very hard. She would do all things Christmas, and she would experience the full spectrum of emotions. She couldn't wait for Christmas to get here, and as soon as the month of December started, she couldn't wait for Christmas to end. Now, there are many reasons behind this, but one of the main ones was is she insisted on having a real tree in her house, which meant for 30 days she put up with pine needles all over her floor. And one year she got so upset and frustrated that when we opened the very last gift, my grandmother told my grandfather, Junior, go get the door. And my grandfather's like, well, you want me to get the, go get the door. So my grandfather goes over and opens the front door. My grandmother goes over to the corner, rips out the plug of the tree, picks it up and throws it out the front yard, ornaments and all. And as she shut the door, she said, thank the Lord Christmas is over. (laughs) There is a way as a follower of Jesus to live within the spectrum of the month of December without falling into either two extremes. Some followers of Jesus go so deep into the month of December and Christmas that you can't know what is celebrating the Holy One versus what is Hallmark. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where there's other Christians who say we need to throw the Christmas trees out the doors. They have no meaning, no purpose whatsoever. And I'm here this morning to just say there is a way to live between those two tensions. So much so that in this season, the history of the church, capital C Church, has said that this time of the year can be meaningful because it can be a time in which you meditate on the hope of God that is available to 
you. And through that hope, I say your Christmas tree can actually point to it. The Bible is actually a story that is framed up between trees. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but God's redemption story is actually framed through two trees. If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to flip around to a couple of different areas. The first area I encourage you to go to is the first tree that you hear about in the scriptures. It's in the book of Genesis. When God is creating the world, when humanity is finding a place, we find that God creates trees and then we're highlighted in Genesis of two special trees. Now out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now in Genesis 2, 9, you basically have God creating a world and inviting humanity. Trust me. Trust me. I've created this world. You can eat from any tree, but trust me, do not eat from this one tree. And for those of us who have heard this story, we know this story unfolds not as one where trust is given in verse 16 and 17. Now the Lord God commanded after Eve grabs of the tree, the Lord God commanded the man you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not touch. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And when humanity actually eats from the tree, then it says, God drove out humanity east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed protection that actually guarded the way to the tree of life. After eating from the tree of good and evil, we're told that union with God is fractured. And as you continue to read through the rest of the scriptures, it is like a broken window that keeps spider webbing over and over and over again as union with God keeps fracturing. But that's only one book end. If you turn to uh, Revelation, which is the very end of the scriptures. We think of the scriptures as stories about God, which is true, but there is also a collective story that is being told through the Bible. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, there is this imagery that the follower of Jesus, John, receives in a vision of what will it be like for God and humanity to be in union again to be one together. And this is some of the language. Then an angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life. With it, 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So once again, God's story starts with the tree and then God's story ends with the tree. That it's actually the tree of life that is the signal of nourishment, of healing, and 
of union. And we as humans live in between those two trees. We live in between the lingering shadow of the first tree and we also live longing for the shade of the second tree. Trees frame God's redemptive story. And as we know, life between two trees is sometimes hard and dark and sometimes seemingly hopeless. In between two trees, murder is confused as heroism. In between two trees, oppression is seen as peace. In between two trees, gentleness is seen as weakness. And that's just what we see in the world before we even get to our own worlds. Living between two trees means we live between the diagnosis and the cure. Living between two trees means living between the tension and the resolve. Living between the ideal and what is healed. In other words, your life, my life, lives between two trees. And God's people know what it's like to hang on to hope in between the two trees, even when it feels like there is no hope. One of the places that we actually find the hope of God, of how do you live in between the tension of these two trees, is actually found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is an in-between story. Now, if you pick up the book of Isaiah, you do not want to just flippantly flip through this book. That would be the equivalent of me walking into a dentistry office and being like, show me the tools and I'll learn it as I go. There's a lot happening in Isaiah. A couple things that I think are helpful to hear. One is a lot of the things you read or hear in Isaiah is apocalyptic. It's poetic. It's giving you imagery to describe what is happening for God's people. Second of all, Isaiah is this prophetic book. He is this prophet who's speaking to the people of God while they're in exile. In other words, God's people have left the ideal and they're grappling with how do we heal? How do we move forward? And this text is actually written six centuries before the birth of Jesus. Now, Christians today read this text and they can't help but see Jesus. But for people who first read this, this would be the people of God looking for direction from God of where do we go from here? And in the book of Isaiah, you find not only just a warning from Isaiah of saying, this is getting off the rails and God's people need to align themselves back. But you actually find the first half of Isaiah that God's people cannot do it. And they don't do it. And by the time you get to Isaiah 53, which is the text that we hear today, you hear of one that's called the suffering servant. In other words, in the book of Isaiah, it's the people of God, Israel, who are supposed to help bring healing to themselves and the nations and the world. But by the time you get to Isaiah 53, 
It's almost as if this servant song is speaking of an individual. That there is a person who will actually help do what the people of God could not do. Maybe imagery would be helpful. I try not to use too many football analogies, but I have one today. If you've experienced what it's like for a team to march down the field and get into the red zone, but they can't actually score the touchdown, that is what the book of Isaiah is feeling like over and over and over again. You just want to throw the remote at the screen. You're like, come on, get to the touchdown. God's people are in the red zone over and over again. And it's not even like they're kicking a field goal. They're punting it away after. Isaiah 53 is one where God's people looking back go, oh, it was Jesus. It was the Messiah who the book and vision and imagery of Isaiah was coming through. And speaking through. And what's so fascinating about Isaiah that's relevant to us is when Isaiah talks about the hope that is coming, he describes it in tree language. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire of him. In other words, Isaiah's vision of this suffering servant is saying, hope is going to come through one who is unattractive and undesirable and is kind of like a puny tree. Think maybe in your mind, the hope of God is not coming through this Rockefeller type tree. But it's coming through this pathetic Charlie Brown Christmas tree. This really pathetic, puny plant is how God is going to bring hope. In other words, the one who comes, there's nothing remarkable about him. There's nothing physically that's like, oh, that's impressive whatsoever. Weak, insignificant, nothing to write home about. This is the one who brings hope into the world. Did you notice that how Isaiah paints the vision is exactly how the Gospels paint Jesus? If you flip through the Gospels, you will find very little, and I would actually argue nothing about Jesus' appearance. Why is that? I'd kind of like to know what the man looked like. There's no image. It's like we're stuck in that scene from Talladega Nights where like, well, I visualize baby Jesus. Well, I visualize Jesus as like full grown, all hair down. What does he look like? And one of the reasons maybe the Gospels do not point his physical appearance is because that's not the thing that was noticeable to people. The Gospels, when they paint Jesus, aren't saying that Jesus is ugly. But that his appearance wasn't the thing that caught you in his beauty. It wasn't his appearance, but those who appeared with him. Maybe another word, another way to say it is the gospel writers is that he brought nothing to the table in his physical appearance. 
It was all about who he shared the table with. That made him beautiful, powerful, noticeable in the world. In his obscurity, he was found not amongst the high status, but amongst those who were hurting and those who were helpless. Jesus was found there, and Jesus can be found there today as well. When I think of the discreetness of Jesus and finding the beauty of him, I think of, uh, there's a story of a uh, brother uh, by the name of Francis. We call him Francis of Assisi. And uh, he lived in the 1200s. I think I got a picture of that bad boy. Uh, it kind of looks like that. I don't know why every time I see his picture, I'm like, he's Jason Whaley. But that's besides the point. I'm digressing. Uh, Francis of Assisi was a deep follower. Oh, you're here this morning, Jason. Hey. <laughs> uh, he was a deep follower of Jesus. But he did not start that way. Francis of Assisi enjoyed a good party. As a matter of fact, he grew up in a very wealthy household where God was nowhere to be seen on his radar. He loved a good party and he loved all the festivities that came with the party. You know what I'm saying? Okay, moving on. As the story goes, and there's several origins of how this story goes, the way he encountered Jesus was one day Francis was on the road going to one of these said parties and in the midst of it, there was a leper, one who would be an outcast, one that was marginalized by society. There was a leper that was in the middle of the road that obstructed Francis from going where he wanted to go. So he yelled at the leper and he did not move. He screamed at the leper and he did not move. Finally, he gets off of his horse and goes over and picks up the le leper and moves him out of the road. But as the story goes, when he picks up the leper, the Lord touches his heart. When he picks up the leper, something snaps within him. As the story is described, the love of God fills him. And he doesn't even move forward with where he was going. He actually turns around and turns his life to God after touching the leper. In other words, he once he touched someone who was so different than him, who was so helpless, who was hurting, the love of God touched him. This is a word for us this morning. When we touch those who are hurting or those who are helpless in society, God tends to touch our hearts. There's a word for us in a season where this can be marked by spending and acquiring and experiencing and going to parties. And I'm not here to ruin your Christmas. I'm here to tell you this morning that you should enjoy the different things that happened in the month of December, but you should not serve them. And you most definitely should not worship them. And one of the things we should be mindful of is if our heart feels distant towards God, the first place we should ask ourselves is are our hearts close to those who are hurting, close to those who need help? Because when we get close to them and when we 
touch them with our lives, with our resources, then God tends to touch our hearts again. Sometimes I hear Christians talk about serving the Lord kind of like we're putting in community service hours. Like this is something we need to do to justify that we believe in God. And maybe that's not a bad place to start, but I think a more fuller vision is to say that we need to serve those who are hurting, those who need help, not because we're putting in hours for the Lord, but that in meeting them and serving them, it's actually how we meet Jesus. That they are Jesus to us and help bring our hearts back to the Lord. Because when we spend time with those who are hurting or helpless, I'm talking about those who are aged, those who are sick, those who are dying, those who are the unborn, those who are displaced, those who are forgotten by the rest of society. We tend to meet the tender shoot. We meet the one who came from the dry root. Isaiah says, if you want to see the one who's bringing hope, you go to the one who by appearance wise is insignificant, but the one who appears with those who are helpless and hurting. Now, Isaiah will move even further. He'll not just give you a description in this poem of what the suffering servant will look like. He'll also describe what our reaction is to the one who brings hope. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, as one whom others hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. In other words, we were not receptive. Isaiah says because of his demeanor, people despised him, rejected him, and hid from him. In other words, people were reactive to the light. In other words, humanity isn't helpful towards him. They're actually hurtful towards the one that brings hope. Maybe an image would be helpful here. A couple years ago, uh, 2020 did this uh, piece on uh, what they call Fairly Road Lane. It is this road in Pennsylvania that's actually recorded as one of the most disturbing neighborhoods to go see Christmas light decoration. That people avoid this road because of how disturbing the decorations are. And it's not because of the whole road. It's because of one house in particular, the house of Bill Ansel, who in this interview, the people describe for years, he's been putting up all of these disturbing Christmas decorations. I've got a picture or two, you actually find that there is really disturbing signs in which he's putting vulgar things talking about the community. If you look very closely, that's Santa urinating and it lights up. In other places you have headless, ooh, that picture's rough, but we've got headless choir. On the sign it says, my neighbors are thieves. It's this really disturbing yard. And as people are doing the interviews, one of the things that they're telling 2020 is they're saying, this man has trapped us. We can't move. No one wants to buy our house. Our family doesn't even want to come and visit. They're so fixated on how awful 
it looks, and I know some of you, if you had Bill Ansel as your neighbor, you would make it your life mission to get rid of Bill Ansel. But what's interesting about the 2020 segment is that in less than a minute, there's a quick recap about who Bill Ansel used to be. That it's mentioned really fast. Bill Ansel actually used to have the best yard in the neighborhood. That he had the most beautiful decorations in the neighborhood. Until one day, a neighbor came, knocked on his door, and said, your decorations are too loud and too bright. We don't like them. And Bill Ansel reacted the opposite way. He said, if you don't like the light, if you don't like the beauty, then maybe you'll like this. And for years after years, he's put out these disturbing and horrible Christmas decorations. In other words, he was reactive towards what people said to the light. In many ways, this is what Isaiah 52, 53 is trying to get to us. That light entered darkness, and darkness did not like it. That there was pain and dysfunction that happened in the world. The Messiah, the suffering servant, the one who knows sorrow too well, enters into a humanity that is trapped can't move and is in a pain cycle of wounding each other. The honest truth that we can remember in December is that we are people who we hide our wounds. And oftentimes we project them onto other people. We contribute to the hurt in the world. I'm amazed that I can drive in a car singing a worship song and all you got to do is cut me off and I'm instantly talking bad about that person. In between gyra. How do you do that in that song? It's the cross of Jesus Christ that reveals how ugly humanity truly can be with our wounds. Because may I remind you, When it comes to the cross of Jesus, it wasn't God who accused Jesus of the many crimes. It wasn't God who betrayed Jesus with a couple pieces of silver. It wasn't God who yelled, crucify him. It wasn't God who flogged or whipped Jesus. It wasn't God's governmental system that ended up murdering Christ the Lord. It was humanity. It was human who responded with darkness to the light in the midst of our pain cycles of anger and fear, we tear down, we crucify. If we got really honest this week and sat down, coffee, are you sometimes a reactive person? Is there something within you that has a hard time giving anyone the benefit of the doubt? Someone can just say the phrase to me, hey, I'd love to talk to you. And by the time I meet with them, I'm like, they're a horrible person. I'm going to rip them a new one as soon as I sit down. And as soon as I sit down, they're like, I just want to see how your day was going. That's all I had. When we're wounded, the thing we want to do is we want to be hurtful. We want to respond 
back with. The Lamb of God, though, responds with not saying, oh, wait, one day you will see. No, no, no. The Lamb of God on the cross literally says, Father, forgive them. When we hurt, we hurt others. When He hurts, He helps. Isaiah's vision tells us of the nature of God and displays the heart of God. As 1 Peter echoes, which verse 5 also says as well, His wounds heal us. Here's how Isaiah 5 says, Surely is born with our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted Him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Healing comes through him being wounded and crushed and burdened. In other words, the good news of Jesus for you to hear this morning is Jesus refuses to leave you hurting. He refuses it. He stops the pain cycle by entering into the pain cycle and says, enough is enough. I will not continue this pain and wounding of humanity. I'll take on those wounds and I will heal the nations through them. A lot of times in this time of the year, we see greeting cards that literally are like, peace on earth, good tidings, Who are we kidding? Humanity's been at this for a while. And peace is not going to come through us. It's got to come through the prince of peace. Our mode of operation is hurt and wounding each other. When we get wounded, what we do is complain, retaliate, and wound further. But Jesus does not. He absorbs our anger and our fear and our frustration. And he literally puts them in the holes of his hands. It's the tree of Jesus Christ that he climbs up on that heals us. If it's the first tree that brings disease upon us, it's the tree of cross that brings ease with the cure of God. The cross of Jesus Christ bridges the life between one tree and the other tree. So my invitation to you is as you enter your home, if there's a Christmas tree, as you walk around the world and you see Christmas trees, my invitation to you this week is let that tree be an indicator of the hope of God that is coming on the way. He rushes in and he heals. Let me finish with this story. In uh, the events of uh, the Twin Towers falling in 9-11, In 2002, the New York Times released this article that still kind of disturbs me today. It's the release of the audio tapes that happened with the South Tower. As you listen to the tapes and the reporters relay some of the things that were experienced, the calmest voices on those tapes before that tower falls is the firefighters. They were not voices of panic. They were voices that were simply stating what reality was, calling for different tools, and describing the hurt that they were witnessing all around them. And in the midst of this article, they focus on some of the tapes 
of the crew that went all the way up to the 78th floor, who they had been stuck there for an hour, thinking at this point no one was going to help them. And as the tapes come to the very end, at 9.48 a.m., the fire chief and his team arrive to meet all those who were stuck on that 78th floor. And the article ends with just this really, really disturbing line of describing the last two minutes. In the article, they kind of say it like this. In their final two minutes, they could behold the promise of deliverance. Why two minutes? Because at 9.50 a.m., that tower collapsed and those voices would never be heard again. Can you imagine what it would be like for those two minutes to have a human come to your floor and give you an image of the deliverance that you're about to receive? That someone would actually enter and wait with you in the midst of chaos all around you and respond. In a way, those last two minutes are exactly what Jesus Christ does for each of us. He climbs the tallest tower, not of his own doing. He's the pioneer who comes in, rushes in, and delivers us in our moment of demise. He is the assurance, the help, the healing we can hold on to, even at the end of our lives. It's the heart of the Father seen through the heart of Jesus who hangs on the cross. I hear so many parents all the time say, I will do anything for my kid to have a bright future. But the Heavenly Father says, I'll send my only son into pure darkness for the ones I call my sons and daughters. He rushes in to provide healing and help because that's what God does for sons and daughters. He heals our wounds. He helps us in our helplessness. And if we want to receive him, we do that too. Heal the wounds. Provide help. Wait for his hope. So Lord, we pray, can you help use us to be a presence that points to the hope that is coming? Jesus, in your name, we claim we have been healed, we are being healed, and one day in your name, we will be healed. Help us point towards that, Lord. Jesus, we thank you for the ways that you've offered yourself in our woundedness and our help. We pray this in your name. Amen. We all stand.